Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Monday, April 10th, we are studying John chapter 20, verses 1 to 18. In today's text, Mary Magdalene goes to Jesus' tomb early on the first day of the week, and when she sees the stone removed, she runs to tell Peter and John. By the end of the text, she will see the reason why the Lord is risen indeed. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Nate Hill. Pastor Hill serves at St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas. Pastor Hill, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Good morning. Great to be with you on this Easter Monday. Hallelujah. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So, Pastor Hill, we are in John chapter 20, looking at the account of the resurrection of our Lord, according to St. John. As we prepare to look at this text, what context should we keep in mind? Well, we have to keep the context of where we are liturgically in the life of the church and where we've just been this past Holy Week. You would have closed with the uh, ending of John chapter 19 with your listeners on Friday, and your listeners would have been off to Good Friday services that afternoon or evening. And we've gone from the lowest point of the low in the Gospel of John, and we see now uh, the breaking forth of the empty tomb and the joy that it brings. The uh, early Christians, when they first encountered the Gospels, they would have encountered the Gospels being read to them most likely in a public setting. And I just can imagine putting myself in the shoes of one of those people, those ancient uh, folks that heard the gospel for the first time, not knowing the entire story, not holding the book in their own hands, but hearing it read to them. They'd have no idea how many pages were left to read, how much time was left in the story. So I just imagine what it would have been like as they hear an orator reading to them chapter 19. They hear the account of Jesus' life, and they see him laid hastily into a tomb after he's been unjustly killed and the darkness is gathered. And, you know, I imagine some of those early hearers, not knowing the rest of the story, would have expected right after chapter 19, verse 42, to have heard the words, the end. So I just wonder what it would have been like for them as they hear the opening of chapter 20, and they would have heard those wonderful words now on the first day of the week and heard that new reality unfolding for them. You know, most stories, they can be either a comedy or a tragedy. I remember learning that at some point in literature class. A comedy starts out where the the main character is in a bad position at the beginning, and through the course of the plot, he ends up in a better place in the end, you know, from bad to good as a comedy. And it's the exact opposite in a tragedy, from good to bad. And I imagine they would have thought the story was a tragedy at the end of chapter 19. And as we open chapter 20, we see a whole new reality unfold. You know, thinking through the the gospel of John, on the one hand, like, yeah, Jesus dying, this seems like, okay, this is a tragedy. The main character has died. And, and is this the end? And yet with the way that Jesus has spoken consistently in the gospel of John, for those who've had ears to hear, 
Jesus has talked about what happened in chapter 19 as his glorification, as his glory, as a triumph. Even in the the farewell discourse or the upper room discourse in chapters 13 to 17, that takes a very triumphant tone to the effect that, I mean, I've heard that same distinction between a comedy and a tragedy. And and yeah, on the one hand, you you could look at it that way, but John's not going to fit into either of those categories nicely, not only because of the way that it, as we're going to see in today's text, that Jesus rises from the dead, but even from the way that Jesus has approached his own death, he's never had a tragic view of what's going to happen. It's been a very triumphant view. I don't know. That's just uh, some some reflections on on having read John for several weeks, several months now. Right. Yeah. And I think maybe the best guide for how these early hearers might have received the text would be the example of Mary and the disciples themselves, who, although they had heard the very same teachings that Jesus has given and John has highlighted in his telling of the gospel, you know, they're in a pretty tragic uh, mood on uh, Good Friday and and even here on Easter Monday. And I suppose um, the original hearers of John's gospel would have had the benefit, of course, of John's, you know, narrative style and his narrator's voice that comes in and provides us with the significance of these events at so many times. But in the same way that um, the disciples had heard, but it would take a little bit for uh, things to unfold. And really, ultimately, it would take uh, the resurrected Christ to make things clear to them. I imagine there would have been a little bit of suspense here in the readers. I don't know if every one of them, or the hearers rather, would have been uh, saying, okay, get on to the resurrection part. Um, I imagine they'd have been uh, feeling the same thing that the disciples did to some extent. And that's that's true in our own lives too. The reality of the resurrection, taking it to heart, uh, is something that unfolds more and more as our Christian faith matures and means more and more to us as we grow in our Christian life. So um, just we are here right at that wonderful hinge point between Good Friday um, and Easter, Easter Sunday, and and what a wonderful text for us to look at this Monday after Easter. Sure. And I, I appreciate those those comments because it's it's one thing for like for you and for me who've read the Gospel of John several times to say, yes, it has a triumphant tone. And we have the benefit of these years of history, having heard the the commentary of various faithful Christians through the ages, knowing what the gospel is all about. On the other hand, the disciples who are going through it, they are sorrowful now, as Jesus even foretold that they would be. They are sorrowful now. And so it is for for many of us in those moments when we we don't see the end, even if it has been clearly told, those those moments where we we haven't seen the full truth. I think we're going to see that in the text today, that these these three primary people that we're going to meet, Peter, John, and, and Mary, they, they are still filled with sorrow in their hearts to the effect that what happens at this moment is surprising to them, even though it shouldn't have been. And I think the fact that we see that should comfort us when we have those moments in our own lives where the things that are happening probably shouldn't be surprising to us, and we should be looking for the work of God that he has promised, but we're not. The Lord remains faithful to us, patient with us. He fulfills his promises, gives us his peace, his gifts, his joy. We're going to get to see all that in today's text. So John chapter 20, you want to read the whole thing at once or you want to split it into two parts? Yeah, I think we can go through the whole text at once here. All right. So John chapter 20, beginning at the first verse. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, 
they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, was not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she looked, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. That is our text for today. That's John 20, verses 1 to 18. All right, Pastor Hill. So this is a, a familiar text, I think. We we celebrate Easter each year as Christians, and we, we hear from the various evangelists. We've got John before us today. This is probably the, the one of the four that is the most different. Let's let's dig into what John gives us, and I imagine we'll make some comparisons with others along the way. But let, let's start where John starts. It's the first day of the week, and he highlights Mary Magdalene. Take us into the opening scenes. Right. So the opening word here is now. This is a, a not a conjunction, but a disjunction, really, from the previous text. It's um, it's showing us that something is happening here that that most people would not have expected to take place. A, a new chapter is arising, and we're mindful, of course, that Mary Magdalene comes on the first day of the week, which doesn't seem like it's uh, anything too important, really, that she's there on a Sunday. But it really is something significant theologically that. Jesus is um, brought to new life on the first day, which, of course, in our theology, we begin to have what we call this new creation, this new eight, eighth-day theology, which was something that took me a while um, in my earlier years to really grasp. Uh, for example, many times at a baptismal font, you'll find that the font is eight-sided to signify that in baptism, one is buried with Christ and risen with Christ anew, that eight sides um, signifying the next first day of the week or the eighth day of creation, a new beginning for Jesus and a new beginning for all of us. So we'll unfold some of that a little bit later for sure. Um, but as we look at Mary Magdalene coming early to the tomb, um, we often read this in a, a sunrise service as we often gather as the sun is arising very early in the morning to celebrate Christ's resurrection in our churches. And we see highlighted here, especially in Mary Magdalene, but also in Peter, and John, that John's account of the resurrection is, I think, highlighting the fact that the resurrection is still a mystery at this point to Mary and Peter and John, even after it's happened. Mm 
the resurrection took place before she reached the tomb in those early hours. Yet um, they don't understand it yet. It's happened in history. It's happened in fact somewhere between chapter 19, verse 42, and chapter 20, verse 1. But we see in Mary that it's not until Jesus, the supposed gardener at first, uh, calls Mary's name in 20, verse 16, that she understands and believes that he truly is risen. Up until that point, you know, she's going with what we would call some rationalistic, just natural answers to what could be. She gets there and sees the open grave. Uh, no Jesus to be found, and she rationalizes that the worst must have happened. Somebody has desecrated his tomb and stolen his body and taken it away to some sort of indignity. So what I see here is is just the rationalization that happens before um, Jesus himself reveals to her uh, that he has truly risen as he had promised he would. Right. So in verse two, when she goes to Peter and John, her words are, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. The they there is, it seems that she's assuming that some enemies or someone has stolen Jesus' body. It seems with nefarious intent, that's what she's got in mind. So that's the that's her own reasoning, thinking about there's an open tomb and there's no body resurrection isn't what she's thinking. She's thinking of other explanations. And you said you see this as a a theme in John's account, as we're going to see with Peter and John and their actions as well. But just that that way of sort of rationalizing a or an open and empty tomb, how do we still see those things at play in human minds today? Well, the same, you know, answer of skeptics uh, is is the same one that uh, Mary had thought at first, too. There are still some people that posit, okay, fine, if the tomb was empty, maybe someone really did steal Jesus' body, and that the rest is uh, sort of a fiction. Or others would say, you know, if Christianity and the Gospels claim an empty tomb, well, maybe it's all been fabricated, and uh, maybe the manuscripts of uh, the Gospels have been changed over time to reflect a resurrection that never really happened. Uh, There was a really interesting article in the Lutheran Witness back in 2020 about the many different objections to the resurrection that exist out there today, and they are very pertinent. I mean, the biggest one that I would say we see is just what we'd call the naturalist objection, which is just a way of saying, you know, dead is dead. There is nothing more than what we can see with our eyes and sense uh, with our senses, and therefore uh, resurrection doesn't happen because it's not a thing that can be. Well, of course, um, that's uh, a denial of, of the divine in every particular way. Other people believe as an, a rationalist objection that uh, either the disciples got together and chose to get their story straight and lie about the resurrection or that they were somehow otherwise deceived and that the resurrection was some kind of uh, farce from the very beginning. Other people think it was a mass halluc- hallucination uh, that was brought on by uh, the experience that the early Christians had gone through. Um, There's even the objection that is popular even in Muslim circles uh, that the idea was that maybe Luke the physician gave Jesus some kind of medication that would make it appear as if he died on the cross, but he really wasn't dead. So he woke up in the grave after the anesthetic wore off and and out he went under his own power that he didn't really die at all. So therefore no resurrection. The objections are, you know, countless that people will have, but, um, it's it's the thing that moves us from these rational explanations to faith is exactly what moved Mary from her rational objection to faith, which is an encounter 
with God at God's initiating, right? Jesus says to her, Mary, and she knows, she hears the voice of Christ, and she knows that it really is him in front of her. Our experience is a little different, as the Catechism teaches us, um, you know, we can't come to the Lord by our own, you know, reason, by our own uh, capacities, but that instead the Holy Spirit enlightens us by the gospel and calls us to faith. So it's when God initiates and reveals to us the truth of Jesus, life, death, and resurrection, calls us into a relationship with him, that all those objections fall away. And we see Jesus Christ through eyes of faith. Uh, we see him risen uh, in the same way that Mary uh, came to understand it too. I think John, the evangelist, as he writes this, is pushing us toward that truth that the only way you will have faith in this one who is risen from the dead is through hearing the word. I mean, you think about what happens in this text. Mary Magdalene doesn't believe until she hears Jesus. And when we think about what's coming in the next text, especially with Thomas, Jesus is going to say, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And then John's going to give us the purpose of his book, which is really the purpose of the scriptures, written so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ. So that even the seeing of the resurrected Jesus, apart from the proclamation of the good news, just that seeing in and of itself isn't a guarantee that someone's going to come to faith. If, if I can skip over to Luke's gospel just briefly, that's the way Jesus ends when he speaks about Lazarus and the rich man, that if even if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, then they won't believe even if someone rises from the dead. So it, it does come down to the preaching of the word in which the Holy Spirit is active to give us faith. And I, I think John, as the evangelist, is moving us toward that conclusion, at least by the end of this chapter. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, people say uh, to see is to believe, and, and that's not uh, an axiom at all that would make sense in this type of, of context at all. Faith is um, something that doesn't require sight, and oftentimes uh, sight, if we, if we think that's going to be the answer that will enable us to believe, uh, might itself be a barrier. It's, it's the Spirit that grants faith, uh, that calls us into a relationship that can confess Christ as our Lord and our risen Savior, and that's exactly what we see playing out here and that John highlights for us. So we see the, that mysterious nature of the resurrection, that these, these three are not ready to, to receive this yet, it seems, that they're not, that's not the first thing that's on their minds. We talked about how that comes into play for Mary Magdalene. How about for, for Peter and John, as we see them in this text? How do we see them grapple with what they're, what they're encountering and not having that mystery of the resurrection? Right, yeah. So they they have their own reaction as they see the tomb for themselves. But in addition to their reaction that they have to it, I, I just get the impression that Mary and Peter and John are almost a bit afraid of the tomb. I think that comes across to me here as well. I, I noticed that as Mary gets there, she sees the stone rolled away, but we don't have the indication that she like climbs down in the tomb. She gets close enough to see he's not in there, but then she runs off immediately. And then Peter and John are sort of in this foot race to get to the tomb. And John is a little bit faster and he arrives and he stoops to look in, but he doesn't go all the way in himself. And then Peter finally catches up and he's bold enough to enter the tomb and he sees the burial cloths and one cloth folded. Um, and only then is John courageous enough to enter in and see for himself. And then we get their reaction and their reaction isn't to say that Christ has risen. Instead, 
they go home. I mean, I guess their reaction is, huh, isn't that strange? Now, we're talk- taking this a little out of order um, here. This is before Jesus, the supposed gardener, reveals himself to Mary. So all three are in the dark at this point, but Mary scampered off to get the two of them. The two of them finally get in there and look, and then it just says they went back to their homes. How strange. Hmm. So I don't know what to make of that exactly. Um, were they supposing that Jesus had been uh, raided out of the tomb or not? But um, then what we see is is exactly what we spoke about earlier, that on Mary's second trip to the tomb, she's brave enough to go look inside. And we can't forget the uh, detail, of course, that God graciously gives her um, the opportunity to see the two angels inside of the tomb to speak to her, to address the fact that she weeps and uh, she claims again, even she persists, isn't it interesting at this point, even in the sight of the angels that they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they have laid him. Uh, That's the second time that uh, this phraseology is used here. And then she turns around and sees Jesus standing. So um, all of this, you know, this fear that they have of death in the grave, this um, sort of uh, catastrophizing, um, thought process that says, obviously the worst has happened and they've stolen my my Lord away from me and, and taken his body away. All of it is just reversed in an instant when Jesus appears to Mary and we see uh, that the grave was empty for the exact reason that he had said it would be empty, that it was empty because in his death and in his resurrection, he has overcome the grave. And what a wonderful thing for us to know that because of Christ's grave being empty, uh, the grave's no longer the final destination. It's not a final destination for Jesus, and because we belong to him, it's not going to be our final destination either. Hmm. So uh, noticing then some of the fear that seems evident among Mary, Peter, John concerning the tomb of Jesus and their their reticence to to either go in outright, there, there's just a, a little bit of fear there, it seems, or perhaps quite a bit of fear how do we see that same fear of death today or how might we encounter it ourselves? And then again, help us to, to see the way that this very text, the resurrection of our Lord helps us to overcome that fear of death. Right. So I think we would um, be liars on a certain level. If we said we weren't all afraid of death, Um, you know, we're not only afraid of death, but, but we certainly all have a fear of dying. I mean, Uh, you know, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die, right? Um, It's this idea that we know cognitively, we know in our faith and in our mind uh, that Jesus is the answer to our death, that eternal life lies on the other side. But um, even Christians don't go quietly into that good night, right? Um, We recognize that death is not a natural part of life. It was never intended. And therefore, you know, when someone dies, even a Christian, um, Although their death is the gate to eternal life, death itself is still a bad thing. Um, It was a bad thing in the fact that it's never been uh, intended from the beginning to be an experience that we would have to go through. So, you know, we are all naturally afraid of death. It's um, something that we Christians struggle with as well, but we know the hope of the gospel that can overcome that fear. But I I really feel for those who don't have um, a Christian faith that can uh, walk with them through the valley of the shadow of death, knowing that that, uh, that valley leads towards uh, the green pastures of God's uh, heavenly kingdom in which we'll all reside. So I know you've probably got as many examples as I do of seeing people mourning at a uh, 
a funeral that you might be conducting and you might perceive in your mind that uh, some people in the the pews uh, understand and and trust in Jesus as their Lord and others don't. And you can see that they process death a little bit differently. And, and anytime you go to preach a funeral, there are people there that they are being confronted with the reality of their own death in a way that they're not in any other day. And the only answer to that is not, um, uh, not just some kind of wishful thinking or anything like that. The answer to that is Jesus' empty tomb, which promises that we too will rise from the dead on the last day. Yeah, I think I'm thinking back right now to the account of Lazarus in John chapter 11, where Jesus tells his disciples that Lazarus has fallen asleep. They think he's talking about a physical sleep. Jesus is actually talking about his physical death. We talked about at the time that that's one of those names of death, that death would be called a sleep that should comfort us as Christians, because it is a sleep in the sense that it is temporary. Christ will wake us up. He will raise us from the dead. But what makes that a real hope, it's not just a, a euphemism or something like that. What makes it a real hope is this event here, that Christ himself has come out of his tomb bodily. He has defeated death in the grave. And that makes the Christian hope that we have at the time of, of the death of a Christian, that makes that a real thing, not just a, a wishful thinking, but something that actually accomplishes something for us. And it, it gives us a real hope. So that, as you said, when we mourn as Christians, we mourn with that hope. It's not just a wishful thinking. Right. And it reminds me of what we see in our own uh, church's cemetery that's just out behind our parsonage. Uh, we go up there and, and walk around from time to time and, and look at the graves that are there. There's a section that has a number of graves for infants and young children that were uh, uh, all buried in the late 1800s. And almost all of those uh, graves bear the same inscription. And as an answer to what is the most tragic human experience that one could imagine, the loss of a child, um, nearly all of those graves uh, have on them the phrase, asleep in Jesus. And uh, that's exactly exactly what those young children are, asleep in Jesus, awaiting the resurrection, and their, their very souls today uh, in paradise with Christ our Lord. So uh, you're right, it's not a euphemism, it's a statement of our hope for what will be fully ours on the last day. Yeah, this is the, the good news that is ours because Christ has been raised from the dead indeed. We're going to take our break here on Sharper Iron. You're listening to us on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Nate Hill this morning about John chapter 20. We will be right back. Please stick around. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, April 10th. We're studying John chapter 20, verses 1 to 18 with Pastor Nate Hill. He serves at St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas. Pastor Hill, prior to the break, we were talking about these three main people in the text, Mary, Peter, and John, and their various reactions to what they are encountering at the, the open and empty tomb 
all this is going to culminate in the appearance of Jesus to Mary by the end of the text. Some of the details that John gives us here in, in this text, I, I've always found fascinating and just rather delightful because I think you see the the eyewitness nature of this text. It could only have been written by someone who was there. So, for example, I, I've always chuckled at least a little bit when John tells us that he outran Peter in verse four. I, I think that's just kind of humorous. Take us into some of these details, like the, the running, things like that. Yeah, that is a funny one. You know, he's he's um, humble enough to not say his name, but call himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, right? Um, and then he, the, he has to, to tell everybody that he's a faster runner than Peter. That is great. Uh, reminds me of my two boys, uh, always jockeying for position. Um, that's, that's an interesting uh, detail, but there is another detail even, uh, just a little bit earlier that I don't want us to, to jump over. Um, you know, I'd mentioned earlier that, uh, Mary says the same words twice, right? She goes back to, to Simon Peter, uh, and John and says, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. And later on, she says the same thing, uh, to the angels inside the, the sepulcher. Well, really actually she changes it a little bit and says, I do not know where they have laid him. The second mm. time, you know, that seems very small and very insignificant, but just in case any of our listeners are, are troubled by the fact that maybe they went to sunrise service and heard John's account and then uh, heard uh, maybe uh, Matthew's account, say at a, a later festival service that morning, and it doesn't seem to jive together. We get different numbers of women at the tomb and, and we might feel like things are happening in a different order. There is a way to reconcile all of this. And we might want to talk about it later in a little bit of detail, but here's a clue. You know, we think it's all, it sounds like it's only Mary at the tomb in the early morning hours here in John, but there had to have been other women with her because right. uh, she says, we do not know where they have laid him, implying that there are others there. So to anyone who's troubled by what appears at the first read, like some ways that the text is disagreeing with itself uh, in the other gospel accounts, all of those things can be reconciled by just pausing, noticing those small details and reconstructing uh, the timeline of what's happened. And in fact, this should be a comfort to us rather than something that causes us any consternation. Imagine if there was a trial and um, you were taking witness testimony to try and establish the events that took place. Um, you would have multiple witnesses giving their story, and then the attorney um, would explain to the jury how all of those fit together into one unified timeline of events that took place. We can certainly do that with the resurrection accounts. So if anyone has had someone tell them that the Bible doesn't agree on the accounts of the, the resurrection, um, take time, uh, dig through the timeline. There are plenty of good online resources that can show you how all four of the accounts reconcile with each other uh, and don't be troubled by that. Um, so that's one, one detail that we see right out in the beginning. Um, sure. And I think what what you're what you're saying there so a careful reading of the gospels is is generally sufficient to resolve any supposed contradictions and i would also add to that a fair reading of the gospels there's a there's another one there toward the beginning that sometimes people will try to latch onto where john says that mary magdalene came to the tomb early and he notes while it was still dark whereas for example in in mark 16 Mark says the sun had risen already. Well, well, which is it? Well, I, I think a fair reading of that is that they're both describing the same time, but using just different language. While it was still dark doesn't have to mean that the sun hadn't yet ri risen. You know, I mean, so like a, a not only a careful reading, but a fair reading of the Gospels too, usually 
will resolve any apparent contradictions. Sometimes you do have to do a little bit of, of legwork, and that's not bad. Uh, but as you said, I, I think the fact that we have these four accounts testifies to their, their accuracy. Because if, if you were going to make this up, don't you think you'd do a little bit better job of, of making them sound a little bit more? You know, you would, you would resolve those things on your own. Christians have always just let those things stand, and, and we, we understand them to all be true together by using, again, a careful and a fair reading of all four. Right. The other aspect of the darkness is, you know, that could have been describing the time when she sets out towards the tomb as the sun is slowly rising. And of course, if it was pitch black. She wouldn't have been able to see anything that the stone had been taken away at all. Right. So um, and if anyone's ever gotten up early to go hunting, right, uh, you can shoot a deer 30 minutes before sunrise. And why is that? Because you can see in the the early morning light before the sun creeps up uh, over the horizon. So yeah, all of these little little details um, are are good for us to have to cause us to stop and wrestle because the story would be even less plausible if each of the gospel writers literally copied and pasted the right. same verbiage, the same small details. Um, you would you would think in that case again to use this trial example that uh, the witnesses had been coached or that they had gotten their stories together. Right, those right. little different ways of describing the same events should actually be a testament to the fact that what's being told is accurate and true. That's right. Okay, so so we've talked about the the darkness, we've talked about the the running. What about the one of the things that John gives us that I, I don't think is present in the other gospels is that when so let's see, Peter gets to the tomb second, but he goes in first. And and when they when they go in, and this is John also seeing, he sees the linen cloths lying there. Peter then goes in, and he sees not only the linen cloths lying there, but also the face cloth, which that's been folded and put in a place by itself. What What's the emphasis here on the, the grave clothes of Jesus? Right. Well, the grave clothes um, are the fact that, you know, they, they've been left behind. Oh, gosh. Wow, that's quite the phrase. Let's not go down. <laughs> let's not go down that road. Um, but the grave cloths are, are still in the grave because Jesus has walked out of them. Those are those are cloths that are used uh, only in death, right? These aren't his, his normal clothes. These are things indicative of the fact that uh, that death has covered him as a pole, and uh, death no longer covers him. The grave clothes are left behind. And of course, the fact that the one cloth has been folded nicely and put in its place uh, indicates that uh, he has done this by the act of, of his will. He's, he's, he's woken up from the slumber of death, and he has uh, nicely folded uh, the cloth and left it in its place as a sign that he has done this of his own accord, that someone hasn't taken him away. Um, and, you know, John, of course, as he records uh, this, this happening, he says, the disciple, other disciple who reached the tomb first himself, went in and he saw and believed, right? So again, though, what does, what does he see? He sees the grave cloths. What does he believe? You know, uh, I don't know that it's the same type of belief or faith exactly that's revealed to Mary um, a few verses later. Maybe it is. Um, but perhaps he, he believes, having finally gotten in there, that Jesus is not in the tomb itself. Uh, who knows? Um, but it's certainly a belief that will unfold uh, and be deepened later on uh, as he'll see the risen Christ uh, tomorrow in the section you guys will be reading. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think commentators have wrestled with what that means that he believed at this moment. But however, however you end up taking it, whether it's you know he believed the tomb was empty, or he believed that Jesus was risen from the dead, which whichever 
end of the spectrum you find yourself on. I think it's important to notice how John records it, not only that he believed, but he he saw and believed. And and that, I think, is, again, driving us forward to what we will look at tomorrow, that, yes, these people saw and believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So that even if it, you know, if this is John believed Jesus was risen from the dead, it came after he had seen, and he doesn't quite get everything yet, which he himself admits in verse nine. They didn't understand the scripture. So yeah, I, I think either either way, John again is driving us forward to that need for the proclamation of the word. As you pointed out earlier, Peter and John then at this point go to their homes. <laughs> Mary sticks around though. So so let's let's go into that part of the text. Mary stays in verse eleven. She's weeping. She sees these two angels in white. We can talk a little bit about that because that's another place where sometimes people will find contradiction. How many how many angels were there? John tells us there's two. Some only mention one. Uh, talk a little bit about the angels. Yeah, well, I, I think other than getting tripped up in those details, I think the angels stand there to point to the reality and the veracity of everything that Christ had said would happen regarding his death and his resurrection. And they come in ministering spirit, right? Um, they they come at her weeping, at her mourning, and they uh, they say to her, woman, why are you weeping? To address her grief. Now, the other thing that we see here is these two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus laid, one at the head and one at the feet. Um, that provides a visual for me that gives me um, a, a recollection of, of something very significant in the Old Testament. And I know you know what it is. What, do you, what are you seeing here, Pastor Apple, as well as I am with I, two angels facing each other? I think we should be thinking about the Ark of the Covenant. And I'm glad you brought that up because I, I've often pictured that too. And I, I was curious if, I, like, if that was a unique thing to me or if, if we should be thinking about that. So, so talk about that connection. Right. So the mercy seat atop the Ark of the Covenant, as many of us have seen illustrations, are the two golden angels that face one another on this rectangular arc, uh, and they stand with their their wings out, wingtip to wingtip, and that's the place upon which uh, the blood of the Lamb was sprinkled, uh, bringing uh, atonement with God. And of course, here we see, of course, we often consider the cross, of course, to be the place where the, the price is paid, and that's very, very true. But to see this um, echo of the, the old covenant and its fulfillness here in the empty tomb uh, is certainly significant to see that without the empty tomb, without the resurrection, um, the work of Christ just upon the cross, had he uh, died tragically, to use the word we'd talked about earlier, and, and not risen, uh, would not have been a something that was complete. His uh, sacrifice would not have been demonstrated to be accepted by the Father. So I do think that's that's an important detail that John is including here for precisely the reason that we should picture the ark, uh, the ark that. Um, that pointed forward to the blood that would be spilled on the cross, but also to the fact that the cross would not be the end, that death wouldn't have its final say over Jesus as it did over the countless lambs that had been offered to appease God in the old covenant. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that connection a lot, especially with the way that, that we've heard Jesus proclaimed as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world from the outset of this gospel. And I, I really think then that that, that connects the cross and the resurrection quite nicely, especially with those words, it is finished. They don't exclude the resurrection, but in fact, they include it. And I think that visual, the Ark of the Covenant here, solidifies that. So, okay, we've got the the two two angels, one at the head, one at the feet, picturing the Ark of the Covenant here. They address Mary. Mary responds, again, with those words, almost the same as what she said before. 
And then having said this, so talking first to the angel, now she turns around and she sees Jesus, but doesn't recognize him at first. So take us into this interaction. Yeah. So they don't uh, provide, the angels don't provide the answer to Mary's question. Jesus himself provides that answer. Uh, now, how it is that she does not recognize him as uh, her Lord and Savior as Jesus, um, I don't really know, supposing him to be the gardener. I mean, there are all kinds of, of reasons. Jesus is perhaps intentionally concealing this from her for a time in order to reveal it uh, in his word, as we've talked about earlier. And also, there's just the fact that uh, when someone is in uh, in the throes of grief, um, things get fuzzy. You know, um, everything just comes crashing down at once. Uh, but nevertheless, Jesus stands there uh, and is the answer to her question. Uh, but she asks it again, right? Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. She she wants to come and and do exactly what she had intended to do for Jesus, which is prepare him properly for his uh, his his permanent burial, right? They've laid him hastily in the tomb because uh, the day of uh, the day of preparation was fast approaching after his death. Uh, she just wants to do this final act of of mercy, in a sense, to Jesus uh, to prepare him properly, and, and that's the only place her mind is. That's the the greatest hope she can muster in this moment of her grief is that she could do that. And now, with Jesus' word revealing himself to her by calling her by name, um, all of her grief is is just going to turn on a dime into unspeakable joy. Yeah, with Jesus calling her by name, I think we can keep in mind the words that Jesus spoke earlier in this gospel in John chapter 10, where he says, the sheep hear his voice, that is the good shepherd's voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. So so Mary recognizes, and later in that same, in the next verse, then the sheep follow him for they know his voice. So when Jesus calls Mary by name, she is one of his flock, recognizes his voice, she recognizes him. She turns and says to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, that means teacher. And then Jesus speaks some words there in verse 17 that probably require a little bit of comment. Why, why doesn't Jesus, well, what does it mean that Mary's trying to cling to Jesus and why doesn't Jesus want Mary to do that? Right. It seems off-putting, doesn't it? As if he's saying, hey, get off of me, you know, um, <laughs> don't get too excited. You know, that's, that's not what's going on here at all, really. I think in a sense, what she's trying to do is, is to hold on to him in the sense that, um, in this moment, this this miraculous moment where he's there in front of her, he doesn't. She doesn't want to lose him, right? She wants to to go back to the way it was before he had died. In a sense, she wants to have this resurrection just erase his death, perhaps, and go back to the way things were before he had suffered and died. But Jesus knows he's got an even greater calling and a greater uh, mission to accomplish that still needs to be, you know, completed or brought to its fullness or a final resolution. So what Jesus knows he has to do is that now that he's died, now that he's risen, now that he um, has accomplished those things, he is now going to turn to teaching his disciples and followers how the Old Testament and all of it has pointed forward in the law and the prophets to him and what he's done. And then finally, he will need to go on to uh, ascend to the side of his father and be fully glorified to his side in heaven. So she can't be there holding him back from what's necessary to happen next. Because in his ascension, he's not going to be departing from us. It's not going to be a deathless death, so to speak, a separation in that sense. It's not his absence from his church, but his ascension will be the taking of his resurrected human flesh into his father's presence in heaven. And from then on, his father will see Christ's glorious wounds as 
the evidence that Christ completed that mission that he sent him for to save mankind from sin. And it's a great comfort to us that Jesus didn't just hang out on earth uh, indefinitely after his resurrection, but he went on to the side of his father because every time God the Father, who is rightfully our judge, turns to his his side where his son is and says, well, what shall I do with this one, with this human who's sinned against me? What does he see? As he sees the human flesh of his own son, Jesus, which has been risen from the grave victorious, yet still bears the marks of his passion upon it um, as evidence of the fact that the sins of that one have been paid for too in my blood. So she wants to cling to him and leave him there, but he knows he's got an even greater thing to go do to be at his father's side as our advocate. Jesus had told his disciples on Monday, Thursday in John 16, that it was actually to their advantage that he go away. And we, we talked about that at the time, that one of the ways he goes away is in his crucifixion, and that's certainly to their advantage. And another way he goes away is in his ascension, and that is also to their advantage as Jesus continues to teach Mary here at the open tomb. Another thing that I think is just so wonderful there in Jesus' words to Mary that's perhaps easy to skip over because we maybe use this language still. Jesus tells Mary, go to my brothers and say to them. The the fact that Jesus calls these men his brothers, I find pretty significant, especially when you think about, for example, the last time we saw Simon Peter prior to this chapter, he was denying the Lord. Here, Jesus calls these men his brothers. Talk about the significance of that. Right. I mean, Simon Peter certainly deserves nothing but um, condemnation from our Savior for his treachery in that moment. Um, yet Jesus is so merciful that he would not um, repay Simon Peter in kind. Um, and that's great news for us, is that even in the midst of our greatest sins, even in the midst of our fallenness, when we sin when we should know better, when we sin after we're a Christian, when we fall down again into some kind of um, some kind of moral failure where we think, well, I guess I deserve from God just uh, to receive as well as I've um treated him to receive the same in kind, we hear the constant voice of Christ beckoning to us that he is merciful to us, that he has not left us behind even despite our sin, but that because he has called us um, to be the children of God and and he has come down into our human flesh, uh, we are indeed his true brothers, uh, those that he has joined himself to and from which he promises not to separate. Jesus, in his words, sends Mary to the disciples, Jesus' own brothers. She goes, talk about how she goes, the, the joy of Mary to go and announce this news. Right. The, exp- the exclamation on her lips is, I have seen the Lord. Isn't that amazing? Um, she, as this eyewitness, can go and say, I know you've seen the empty tomb. I saw it too. I didn't know what the, the truth was or what really happened, but I know now because I've seen the Lord with my own eyes. And, and what a wonderful thing. Um, that she would do, that she would rush off to tell others as the first order of business. She doesn't just return to her home. No, she goes and seeks out uh, those who she knows needs to hear the exact same news that she's seen with her own eyes. Yeah, yeah. And, and once again, and not to certainly not to put any of these these people down, Mary, Peter, or John, but again, it is that she has seen, right? So we people are seeing Jesus, but this will culminate in the blessing given to those who have not seen Jesus and yet have believed because they have heard his word. That's where we're, we're going here with John. So Mary has seen the Lord, and what joy that has been for her, for the disciples that is about to get, be given to them in the next text. Pastor we've got about six minutes here, and we've been talking about the resurrection of Jesus. This is the Easter account, very familiar, but this is such an important 
part of Christianity, perhaps we would say the linchpin of Christianity, the resurrection. So let's let's talk about the importance of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus from the dead, the importance within the faith and also for our faith, what it means for us. Right. So the first thing I think we should make clear to everyone, and I think your listeners know this, is Easter is the chief holiday of the Christian faith. Um, functionally, you know, my church is fuller on Christmas Eve than it is on Easter, and that's a shame because as wonderful as the incarnation is, the empty tomb is the thing that gives us real hope. One of the things I like to uh, to to teach is that we can envision Christ who has taken on our human flesh as a trailblazer of sorts. Oftentimes uh, we go to a state park and you walk down a trail for a mile or two or three across terrain that was previously at one point completely uncleared. And you sit there and you say, gosh, how many people have walked this trail before me? I don't know. It must be thousands. But who was the first one, right? At one point, that ground was uh, yeah. thick and impassable, and somebody had to be the one to go first, to, to walk with that machete and, and cut the trail. And in a sense, what Jesus has done is he has been the trailblazer that has paved the way, that is, has made, um, made a road that passable that goes from death and the grave to eternal life. And I just love that that image, that because he, as our human brother in his all of his humanity, because he is risen, uh, we too now shall rise and follow him all the way down the path that he's, he's blazed to heaven. So we often think of the grave as Christians, as um, not as Christians, but just in our common uh, parlance as being our final resting place. You know, um, it's not. It's not our final resting place. And we have to remember that, that the grave is a place that our bodies simply await the resurrection and that wonderful day that uh, death will be no more. And it's all accomplished because of what Christ has done for us and his resurrection too. So just an amazing thing that Jesus' resurrection is not only for him, it is absolutely for you as a Christian and can bring such great comfort and joy the more we understand its significance and implications for our lives. Yeah, as you said, the grave then is not the final resting place, but those bodies that are laid laid in the grave in the hope of resurrection will be raised from the dead. Just as our Lord Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, so will all who are in him be raised to that same immortal, eternal life that he has. And that that certainly gives us comfort and joy and hope upon the death of a, a loved one who is a Christian, and we've talked about that already. But I, I am curious, Pastor Hill, because we, we do often talk about that, and rightly so, the comfort that the resurrection of Jesus gives us upon the death of a loved one. But what about for for the rest of this life, for for the days in which you know death is not squ- staring us squarely in the face? How does the resurrection of Christ give us confidence for the the Christian life, even bef- you know when death isn't the first thing on our mind? Right, and this is where we um, look at the baptismal connection between Christ's cross and His empty tomb and our lives. And Romans six is, of course, a place we would go to find this um, really explained to us in such perfect clarity. Um, Romans 6, verse 4 specifically says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So this gets back to that sort of eighth-day theology, right? This new life that comes to us through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. What's died on the cross with Jesus um, is is our sin, and what is raised from the empty tomb with Christ is a new life in which we can walk in joy and um, and happiness and service toward our neighbor and a, a pure desire to 
love and serve our Lord. Now, our old nature clings to us, of course, um, but we do walk in that new reality of being resurrection people, uh, people who uh, belong to Christ and who belong to Christ's resurrection even before the last day and can bring um, the joy of the kingdom into our uh, daily living with those around us. We talk about in the catechism, thy kingdom come, right? And it's this idea that we're not just praying for the last day to get here a little bit quicker, uh, but we're praying also that the kingdom of God would rule and reign in our hearts and radiate out from us even before that day comes as light in the midst of a dark world. Yeah, and as, as St. Paul concludes his great chapter on the resurrection of Jesus and our resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, he gives us these words, therefore, so within, with this in mind, the resurrection of Jesus, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So again, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is the chief holiday for us as Christians, the holy day upon which our hope rests. It gives us hope and comfort on at the last, but also even now in this life, this is our confidence. Christ is risen. Alleluia. Pastor Nate Hill is pastor at St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas. He has been helping us today to study John chapter 20, verses 1 to 18. Pastor Hill, thanks for being our guest today. Great to be with you, Pastor Apple. Happy Easter. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about the gospel according to St. John and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, please send us an email. Send it to kfuo at kfuo.org. It is always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.